So I'd like to start tonight with a poem from Kabir. It's called A Place to Sit. Don't go outside your house to see flowers. My friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body, there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. That will do for a place to sit. Sitting there, you will have a glimpse of beauty inside the body and out of it, before gardens and after gardens. So there's a line at the beginning of one of the Anguttara Nikaya, and it starts out, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And this morning, Sylvia invited us, as she did also last night, to rest the mind and heart, to rest in the mind and heart that is in contention with nothing and with no one. And if you keep going back in the retreat, back in this month, early in the retreat, Donald, in one of his talks, invited us to rest in the natural awareness of the mind, simply noticing whatever came to disturb the awareness. Sounds pretty good, actually, doesn't it? But the sutta goes on to say, you know, that the mind, this luminous mind, is colored by the attachments that visit it. Here's the whole thing. He says, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind. So the retreat, someone um, who just arrived at the retreat um, said, it's so quiet. It's so quiet that they could come in here and just feel the energy and that it was being so supportive as they came into the retreat. So those of you who are in the heart of it, those of you sitting here, may not be quite so aware of that because you're doing the work that you're doing. But it feels to those of us who come in and go out ever deeper and ever quieter, practically hour by hour. But you know, we haven't given up meeting with you. We haven't said, well, it's quiet enough, we'll stop now, you know. (laughs) And um, at least, I don't know about the other teachers, but I suspect, like me, um, you know, we continue to hear your stories of the struggles of practice and the places where it's really hard or where you feel really lost or really confused, which are interspersed with times that are truly peaceful and the mind and the heart are very open. There's great, vast awareness or times of deep concentration. But any way you cut it, you know, the awakened mind, these moments of peace and awareness, um, they're difficult to sustain. They come and they go. 
So the Buddha, as you probably remember, many times of his life, even on the evening of his awakening, was visited by Mara. (laughs) Mara is the one who comes and says, do you really want to do this? You know, couldn't you do, couldn't you be an emperor instead of a Buddha? Wouldn't that be better, you know? Or who are you to think about being enlightened? I mean, really. You know, you may have heard that voice yourself a few times. And every time he comes, you know, they have this interaction. And then the Buddha recognizes him. Often he says something like, I see you, Mara. And then Mara kind of wilts and he slinks off all defeated. So our times of awakening, the times that come for us that are clear and alert and present, are also challenged by Mara in a way. That's his job, actually, is to come and say, hey, you know, are you really sure about this? And to see, you know, are we really going to work at cultivating this mind-heart complex. So I want to tell you a story as we talk about the Dharma tonight, kind of weave it through. So nine years ago, almost exactly, my husband and I um, purchased a home in Volcano Village on the big island of Hawaii. It's truly on a volcano. And it has, we have about two-thirds of an acre, just a small piece of land, which is forested. And at the time was packed with yellow ginger. Beautiful, tall plants, taller than I am, with yellow aromatic blossoms. They are the epitome of everything you think of when you think of Hawaii. You know, that those wonderful smells. And... As a plant, it is incredibly invasive and it doesn't belong there. It's um, a foreign species. So, you know, there it was. The blossoms smelled good. I cut them. I put them in vases around the house. We let it stay there. Kind of during that time when we were becoming acquainted with our property, as one does, And as we were there, we began to make friends and we talked to different people and um, some of them knew quite a bit about the biology and the botany of the land and were very knowledgeable and, um, and they knew, they actually knew this particular piece of property fairly well and they encouraged us to think about returning it to its native state and they told us that they knew that underneath all of that ginger kind of woven in with it, there were a lot of native species that were hidden there. So we thought about, you know, what to do. We could poison it, right? That didn't seem like such a good idea. We're not really into that kind of thing. You can dig it out, but it has these really big corms that are deep in the earth, and it's incredibly hard work that involves probably really strong young men instead of old ladies and um, who dig and use pickaxes and things like that for hours at a time. That didn't seem like such a good idea. And then one friend who was um, quite well um, learned in the ways of permaculture said, chop it. 
She said, just chop it and then chop it again when it comes back up. And that it would eventually give up. And she said also when she chopped it to just leave it where it lay so that it would, um, you know, ultimately rot and nourish the, the native plants. So we thought about that. And one day I found a really nice big old knife in my kitchen. And I walked out the door with my trusty knife in my hand, and I began to chop. So our minds are not so unlike that piece of land, are they? You know? We're told that they are naturally aware and luminous and brightly shining. Um, But often, particularly at any point when we begin to practice, They're kind of far from that state. They don't feel so aware or so luminous. And Larry talked the other night, he talked about how uh, practice is the reconditioning of mental and emotional landscapes. I loved it. I think he must have known I was going to be talking about gardening, you know. So, so, or the Buddha seemed to have the same image that this was the, the awakened mind, the luminous mind was something that we could cultivate, that we could we could work with all of the invasive species that um, come into the space of the mind and the heart. So as we go through our times of practice, here you are. The last time I gave a talk, I counted the days. I think I've given up at this point. Seems like a long time for everybody. Um, and every point along the way, you know, as as we begin to wake up, you know, and maybe especially as when you have some moment of insight or seeing something a bit more clearly, we are challenged by Mara. And he doesn't come alone. He brings his buddies and who really are what encourage us to move away from that which is awake and that which is skillful. So these allies, these buddies are known familiarly as the Ten Armies of Mara. And they are sense pleasures and dissatisfaction, hunger and thirst, craving, sloth and torpor, fear, doubt, conceit and ingratitude, gain and praise, and self-exaltation. So these are the things, these are the things, you know all those stories that come in, you know, that play themselves over and over again, those bad novels that the mind writes. These are the grist for those stories, you know. And they so often take a moment of, of awakening and tweak it. I came across this particular story um, one day, Mara, the evil, no, evil one, was traveling through the villages of India with his attendants. And he saw a man doing walking meditation, so just like you, whose face was lit up with wonder. The man had just discovered something on the ground in front of him. Mara's attendant asked what it was, and Mara replied, A piece of truth. Doesn't this bother you? When someone finds a piece of truth, oh, evil one, his attendant asks. (laughs) So here's the answer. 
No, Mara replied. Right after this, they usually make a belief out of it. (laughs) So we know that place, don't we? Where, you know, there's some moment of seeing and then faster than you can blink an eye, faster than anything, the mind begins to create some kind of a story around it. You know, and already, there you are, invaded once again. You know, it's pretty amazing, really. So the first part, the first group of these, as I paid attention to them, I thought that, you know, they really all speak to some of our kind of basic needs in life, you know, and our addictions, the places where we get really caught. And sometimes they even push against our instinct for survival. And some of them are things that we actually really have to pay attention to in order to practice, you know. So I'm going to tell a number of stories in this part, and I'm going to tell them about the one yogi that I'm really free to talk about. So that's me. So you're going to hear some things about, you know, different retreats and all of that. It's a fair amount of self-disclosure. I think since Sylvia announced she was going to do self-disclosure last night, I figured I'd better announce myself. So, you know, this is a renunciate practice. You were warned about that, actually, when you filled out your application. You know, this is a renunciate practice. Be ready, you know. And truly, each one of you has given up so much in order to be here. I hope you appreciate that, actually, and really honor it. You've given up all of your usual sense pleasures, your usual food, whatever you eat at home, your home itself, and its comforts, you know, sex and music and the ability to go any place you wanted to go, when you want to go, get up when you want to, go to bed when you want to. There's just so much that we let go of. And I, I do remember quite clearly at a three-month retreat, we'd gotten to about week eight. And at about week eight, so you can imagine it's the end of two months here, you begin to think, you know, why do we need this extra month? I mean, really. <laughs> What's the point? And somebody put her hand up, you know, in the hall, and she said, I want ranch-style potato chips and onion dip. You know, what's the point? Why do I have to stay here? You know, the renunciation was just beginning to create a lot of turmoil and stories going on in her mind. And, and you are here. So the other day, I was driving down. I had to go down to Santa Cruz for a doctor's appointment. I was listening to the radio, you know, NPR, Terry Gross doing an interview. She was interviewing somebody who um, has written a book about habits and, and how to break them. And he said, you know, absolutely the best way to break a habit, are you ready for this, is to go on vacation. So I thought, well, that's interesting because I've just left 80-odd people who are really on a vacation where they are breaking habits because you don't have your usual cues. So you don't have the things that trigger the potato chips, the onion dip, the TV, the internet, whatever it is that is your particular um, place where um, you get caught, you know. So then, 
you can be here, you've done your renunciation, and then dissatisfaction can get in the way. So it's really important to remember that we need some seclusion and ease to practice, and we offer that to you here. Spirit Rock is really a wonderful place to sit, and it's important to be somewhat comfortable. When I was sitting March myself a few years back, I decided, the weather was quite nice as it was a few weeks ago, and I decided I wanted to do quite a bit of my practice out in the forest. And I found a spot, and I came in, and I told Jack, who was my teacher, okay, I've got this great spot under the tree, I'm going to be a forest yogi, you know. And he said one question, which I never imagined that he would say, he said, are you comfortable? And I went, huh? (laughs) You know, are you supposed to be comfortable if you're out in the forest? But I realized after a while of sitting on rocks, you have to be comfortable. You know, there's a point at which if you're too uncomfortable, you can't practice. And a certain amount of dissatisfaction begins to arise, and then that really interferes with the practice. And if your conditions don't provide it, you can make it. So at another long retreat, a long time ago, I was at Santa Sabina, which is a lovely Catholic center not far from here that we used to use before Spirit Rock. And they have a shop. And I was sitting about two weeks there all by myself before the retreat actually began. And I would wander through the shop and pretty soon I thought, I could use that beautiful icon to have in my room. Or I would see a book of poetry and think, oh, my retreat would be so much better if I could have that book of poetry. And you know, I mean, I was shopping hand over fist at this retreat and creating a lot of dissatisfaction in a situation that was actually quite wonderful. And, um, you know, it, it was, the armies of Mara had definitely invaded at that point. You do need, you know, basic things. You need um, food and water. Hunger and thirst could be a real problem. You need sleep and shelter. And it's important to remember, you know, even the Buddha went, you know, he did all those ascetic practices, remember? And he was down to one grain of rice a day. You know, they said that when you grabbed his stomach, you got his backbone, and if you touched his backbone, you got his stomach, and his skin turned all black, and he was very close to dying, and he realized that's not the way to do this, you know? The way to do this is some middle way where, where your needs are tended to so that you're not at the point of starvation. And out of all of these things, craving can arise, you know. And then we get attached and we have to have something. And you know what? There's no craving. You're not ever going to hear in a Dharma talk, well, you know, here's the kind of craving you can have and it won't lead to suffering. Because it always does. So again, at actually that same three months, I'm a coffee drinker, I will confess. And um, like here, they don't serve it there. And I thought, I'm going to be a good yogi. I am not going to drink coffee for three months. And I will be fine. I will drink tea and I'll be happy. But you know, some people came equipped with coffee. And after a while, you know, I'd go into the dining hall and I'd... And I'd go, oh, coffee. Oh, coffee. So my parents at the time lived up in Maine, and so I wrote a quick note to my mother. It said, send coffee filters and coffee. 
she was probably very bewildered, but she did it. And so I had a little bit of coffee, and then it, there started being some Donna coffee, and so I had this whole coffee thing. So, but then there was this cute man who was also getting coffee every time I was getting coffee. And so pretty soon, the craving for the coffee led into a full-blown Vipassana romance. So not only was I craving the coffee, there was this cute man. And then, on the bulletin board one day, at a time when we weren't so stern with people about sending notes to yogis, there was this little folded-up twisted piece of paper that had three chocolate-covered espresso beans in it. And I knew it was true love. I mean, what else could it have been? (laughs) It just went on and on, one piece of craving leading to another. I finally went in to see Joseph. I felt like I should have a bag over my head or something. And I wouldn't let, at that time there was somebody who was training to teach. I wouldn't let her sit in on the interview. I was so embarrassed. And I had to tell the whole story. And and you know, it was really great. He settled back in his chair and he said, Oh, good. Now you're going to learn all about desire. It's probably the best thing he could have said, you know. Oh. So then, the next armies come along and they also create difficulty in our practice. Sloth and torpor, you know, which all of us have at the beginning of retreats, or most of us do, as we settle in. And there, you know, it's usually because we're tired, but once you're well into the retreat, when it really kicks in in a big way, you know, the question always is, what would you feel or see if you were awake? Because going to sleep is a great way not to be awake, isn't it? You know? And so sometimes we literally, physically go to sleep. Sometimes the army of fear rolls through again, you know, and we, we are just terrified of the retreat or what might come next. Sometimes we want to leave, you know, there's that rolling up the mat stage where you think, okay, I, I, I'm done, you know, it's over. I'm just, I can't go there. Often it's because we're about to go a little bit deeper And it's really, really important to remember that thing that I said the other night, that fear is always about the future. It's not about the present moment. That when when the fear comes up in in the retreat, on the cushion, it's really helpful to ground ourselves in the body and go, oh, I'm here, you know, sitting, breathing, body, breath, one moment at a time. And to let it unfold itself. You know, stay with what you know just now. And sometimes the army of doubt rolls through, you know, and you think, it's not working. It's not working. I know it's not working. This has been a theme in a few interviews. You know, I just don't think this practice is doing it for me. But you know, I used to think that I would go in for an interview someday. I I was quite new to practice at this time. Maybe you probably aren't there anymore either. And that I would be told I could stop. (laughs) (laughs) You're done now. You don't have to, you don't have to do this anymore. You know, you can just stop. Alternately, sometimes I thought maybe I was going to get the advanced secret teaching, but you know, neither of those things ever happens, does it? We just keep going. You know, I often, I find myself saying in interviews, those of you who are working with me know this, I say what Upandita used to say to us at the end of interviews, 
Yeah, he'd kind of look up. He was he would often be doing paperwork and stuff, sort of while you were describing your practice. It was a little disconcerting. And then he would say, "Carry on, carry on." It was always carry on. It didn't matter whether he liked what you were saying or didn't like what you were saying. We still carry on, you know. So carry on. Just keep practicing because this, it's seed planting. Remember. It's, it's creating the conditions for awakening. Everything you do, every breath you take, every time you come back, that creates the conditions for more awakening. And then the next three, the last three of the armies, address different flavors of the mind, the ways that the mind itself sometimes can lead us astray. So one of them is conceit. And conceit just to remind us, is the comparing mind. You know, it's that place where we're always comparing ourselves. Sylvia read that wonderful line this morning from the third Zen patriarch, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. The great way is not difficult for those who are not endlessly comparing. And conceit in Buddhist thinking, it's not just like I used to think of it when I was in sixth grade where you were kind of snooty and you thought you were better than everybody else. Conceit in Buddhist thinking is any kind of comparison. It's no one is as bad a yogi as I am. I am the worst meditator here at Spirit Rock. I know it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm just about the same as everybody else. I look around, they look like me. You know, it looks like I'm, I'm probably, you know, I'm probably, yeah, I think I'm as good as everyone here. Or the place that is, you know, okay, I'm the slowest, I'm up the latest, I'm here the earliest, I must be the most awake person here. So that place where we're, we're just, we're always grading ourselves, aren't we? You know, I think we got into the habit when we were in school and we just haven't stopped. And interestingly enough, I loved it that it said, and one of the things I read Um, conceit and ingratitude. Because when we're grateful, it doesn't matter, does it? I've had so many of you have come in and said, oh, I am so grateful to be here. It is so amazing to be in this place of practice. It doesn't matter, does it, then, whether you're the same as, better than, or not as good as. It's just so wonderful to have a period of time like this in which to practice in a setting that so well contains it. It is enough. David White says, Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now. And we yearn for praise, gain and praise. We yearn for the teacher to, you know, come into the interview and the teacher will say, great, you've really made progress, you're on your way. Soon you'll be enlightened, soon you'll be awakened. 
or, you know, if we would only hand out little gold stars every time you came in, or something. And there's a way we also do it to ourselves that is very tricky and I think important to pay attention to, which is sometimes you're sitting along, your day goes by, something happens, can happen, often happens in the in-between places, and all of a sudden you see something. You see some kind of insight about the nature of self or suffering or impermanence. You go, oh, wow, I never saw that before. And then you go, wow, I had an insight, I had an insight. Oh, goody, goody, I had an insight. And then you get excited and then you think you have got to have some time off for a while and pretty soon your practice is derailed again because you're busy giving yourself several gold stars and it doesn't, you know, it's not so helpful. Instead of, you know, I can remember a teacher saying to me, just note insight, 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 and then go on to the next thing. It was a very, very hard teaching. And then the last army is the one of self-exaltation and disparaging other, where we really put someone else down. I doubt that there's very much of that here. But every now and then, you know, you can, I can remember moments of watching somebody thinking, are they really practicing? You know, oh, I don't know, it doesn't look that way to me. And I was thinking about a roommate I had at a, a retreat some years ago, and it was, mm, it was difficult, and um, there were some notes that she wrote me. And I had some, <laughs> I had some questions about the whole thing. And then the retreat ended and I went away and several years later I ran into her at another retreat. She was really happy to see me. And she said, you know, I was in the first months of being really, really ill during that time. And um, she appreciated, you know, that I had not done anything or said anything. And I didn't tell her what had happened in my mind. Um, and I, it really helped me to see that, you know, I had a whole story about her that was not at all true. And so when these armies come through, the mind contracts, we don't see clearly, the mind is invaded just as my land was. So several times now, you have been offered that wonderful acronym of RAIN, of recognize, allow, investigate, and not identify. And I've so appreciated that the acronym has come along with the actual physical rain, you know, that we've had this beautiful sweet rain nourishing the land just as we have the rain of mindfulness and metta nourishing our hearts and minds. And so you've, you know, I think I've heard from people that they're working with it and you're finding that this is a very good way, a very helpful Um, way to work with the heart and mind when there are difficulties there. And we've been offered some other images. Larry talked about feeding, I think it was Larry, feeding the demons. And um, so some of you are perhaps finding that when you actually sit down with some of these demonic energies and offer them some cookies and tea, that as you begin to know what they're about, then the whole situation eases. So back on my land in Volcano, just to go back there for a moment, you know, I did begin that process of chopping. 
And probably like many of you, I, I really do like to garden. And so the work felt like a gift, just as the work of retreat often feels like a gift. And in fact, a number of times now I've done self-retreat on that land and the clearing of it has actually, the chopping, has actually been part of my work during the retreat. So for seven years, every time I went there, I chopped. So it was a lot of chopping, a lot of messiness. And then after the seven years of chopping, we've now had two more years of pulling sprouts, which, and that won't, won't come to an end. That will always continue. And really, what a mess. Oh my goodness, you know, all this cut ginger lying all through the forest. It did not look very promising, I can tell you that. And then I'd come back a few months later when it had sort of settled and rotted and it would start looking pretty good again, and then I'd do the whole process all over. But amazing things began to emerge. You know, there were all kinds of giant tree ferns, hapu'u we call them in Hawaii. And there were wonderful mosses that began to grow on the logs and in the in-between places and lots of smaller ferns and an amazing plant that's a relative of the African violet except it's bigger than I am and has these great big furry leaves. And You know, I just kept finding one thing after another as I did the cultivation of that land. And, you know, so it's it's a really wonderful metaphor for the work that we're doing on the heart and the mind and really important to remember that sometimes it doesn't look very promising when you're midstream, you know, that you think, oh, I don't know. So tonight we wanted to offer you another set of wings to add to your equipment for working with your mind and heart, for working with these many difficult states, many armies. I actually don't think Mara has 10 armies. He's probably got 5,378 of them, or you know, or maybe several gazillion, I don't know. Uh, it seems like a lot. But it's helpful to have as much as we can to work with what's going on. So there's a list, which actually isn't talked about so very often. Some of you, I think, in the first month heard a talk from James about it. Um, it's called the, the Four Powers, or the Four Idipadas, or the Four Paths Which Can Lead to Success. And it's a list um, that we invite you to experiment with for yourself, to begin to see how it is in your own heart and mind, to check it out. Um, because they're meant to support the success in your practice, you know, to strengthen your awakening. So, in as we work here, it's pretty clear we need, for example, we need concentration. Five of the 37 wings are concentration. It comes in over and over again. We need mindfulness. And we need to learn how to be very, very present all the time. You know, that wonderful question, I haven't been in here late at night, but it's the question I like to ask sometimes when I'm here late at night and I send people off to bed. When you wake up, notice, do you wake up on the in-breath or the out-breath? And then your day goes from there. So you could try it tomorrow morning, in-breath or out-breath. Very mindful all the way through. You know, is your last breath before you're really asleep an out-breath or an in-breath? You could ask it again. 
And then there are these four powers that are also on these lists. Now, powers in practice is kind of interesting. And Sylvia the other night talked about that great teacher, Deepama, who was reputed to be able to walk through walls and to move around in space and be more than one place at a time and all those kinds of things. And, you know, if you read traditional Buddhist literature, you're going to read about that stuff. You know, psychic powers, physical powers that are not, you know, in laws of time and space as we know it, walking on water, flying, you know, that kind of thing, reading minds. But it's made quite clear in all of the teachings, regardless of whether you, what you think about those things, they're not so important as the power to end greed, hatred, and delusion, the obscurations or the defilements. That's what's really important. Because those obscurations, remember, a mind that is fully awakened is a mind that has no greed, no hatred, no delusion. It's one of the simplest and I think most helpful definitions of the awakened mind. No greed, no hatred, no delusion. Far more important to be able to do that than any of these other things. And another way to say it that um, struck me is that the power to walk through the walls of the mind is much more significant than the power to walk through a physical wall. So, there are four. Um, The first is called chanda, and it has to do with zeal or passion or enthusiasm. So, why are you here? Why are you here? Why did you come to this retreat? Why have you stayed for two weeks or six weeks or however many weeks you have been here? What inspires you? What is this? You must be passionate. You cannot do what you're doing if you do not have enthusiasm and zeal. So really helpful to recognize it because it's there. You know, what brings you? And I thought, as I was writing, I thought, well, okay, so what brought me? So there's a way, just, you know, a little bit more about my own story. There's a way in which I've always been on the path. You're looking at someone who raised herself Catholic secretly in the bosom of an uh, agnostic family. And, and I did that for, until I was 17. Kept it a secret and practiced because I didn't think my family would approve. And they didn't, in fact, as it turned out. You know, so where the, there was this thread that I began to follow. I, I can't actually imagine not following it. I just happen to be one of those people. I know we all have different stories, you know. So some of you have that thread, that passion, that spiritual longing, has been there with you as long as you remember. It goes way, way, way back. We could have a lot of fun telling those stories. Sometimes you hear someone, and I was reminded that as I began to move towards Buddhist practice, I went once down to the Transpersonal Psych Conference down at, that used to happen down at Asilomar. Maybe it still does. No? And... Um, I, actually, it was where I met Jack Cornfield and started 
this path, this Vipassana path. But the other person I heard there was Roger Walsh, who was a great teacher and yogi, and who spoke in this incredible way about all of the suffering in the world. And he, he listed, he started listing all of the wars, all of the famines, all of the environmental disasters. And after a while, he began to weep. I was undone. I thought, I don't know what he has, but I, I want that. I want that. I want, to, I want my heart to be that open, to respond in that way, you know. And all of us have these different things that have inspired us. Or in the Tibetan world, there's some traditional things you can think about that you might, that you might want to consider. One is how rare it is to have a human birth. And in, you know, the, in the cosmos of cosmology of the Tibetans, you know, it was considered to be very unusual to, to be a human being. But now, given what we know about astronomy and astrophysics and all of that, you know, just imagining how big the picture is and how we have no idea if there are any other beings like us anywhere. Probably, might be, the chances are pretty good, they say. But you know, it's so big, isn't it? So many galaxies, so many planets. So rare to have this human birth on this beautiful planet. The second one of these Tibetan reflections is the reflection on impermanence, that everything is arising and passing away so quickly. You know, where's lunch? Lunch is back there with the pharaohs. It's gone. You know, it can be a little scary sometimes. Not only where's lunch, where was the afternoon yoga? Where was the, where's the beginning of the Dharma talk? Where's the beginning of my sentence? It's gone. Just like that. Things are arising and passing. And, and the third one, which goes with that, is that one thing that is certain is our own dying. And the only thing we don't know is when. There's a lovely poem from um, W.S. Merwin. He says, Every year, without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out, tireless traveler like the beam of a lightless star. Imagine, every year we pass the anniversary of our death. We just don't know that we have. None of us do. And then the fourth is that we live in a very difficult realm. We all know this. You know, many of you I know out there in the world work tirelessly for the ending of suffering for many beings. And um, we're very aware of how much suffering there is in the planet today. And we forget it sometimes, you know, if our life gets a little easier, a little routine. Many years ago now, um, right after 9-11 happened, I was going for a walk with Noah Levine, who's one of our young teachers, and he was just doing in his teacher training in those days. And we were talking about the events of, that had just happened. 
And he said, you know, I'm really, it's making me remember, it is samsara. You know, horrible things happen. It's very, very difficult. It's difficult, we're here only a short time, and that can inspire this passion for practice. Let's do the best we can. Let's do the best we can. Let's wake up as much as we can in this time that we have. And so that brings us to the second of these wings, which is the wing of diligence or perseverance. And I feel like I'm preaching to the choir on this one. You have so much diligence and so much perseverance. You know, here you are, sit after sit, day after day, week after week. You keep coming, walking after walking. It gets hard. You know, once in a while you come in and we give you a little encouragement, but you keep on doing it, you know. And it's a ceaseless application of your energy to your practice. And this is the energy that flows from your passion, from your motivation. And one of the images that I came across reminded us, think of the energy that, what happens when you fall in love. You know, you might, I mean, some of us are getting up there. Maybe you don't remember when you last fell in love, but actually I remember when I did. And, you know, there's so much energy and you're awake more and you eat less and you're so excited and there's so many things to do and you don't sleep. And, you know, the only thing that matters is this beloved being that you've just encountered. It's helpful to reflect on what brings energy to your practice because you need that energy. And so you're, you're doing, just in being here, one of the wisest things that, that is retreat practice. But any kind of regular practice um, will, will bring energy to what you're doing. John Tarrant, in talking about mindfulness, describes the practice of it. He says it's an, an attention so persevering that it becomes a kind of love. So that, you know, that really um, strong diligence. Sometimes it's gentle. Sometimes people come to retreats, they've been sick, they're grieving, and we create a retreat that's accommodating of that situation, you know, more rest, not pushing so hard. And sometimes it's what I call the John Wayne retreat, where you just, it's like you fasten your seatbelt on your zafu, you know, you're kind of, and you just go, you know, late at night, early in the morning, sitting, walking, maybe long sits, and it's the perfect thing for you at a particular point in practice. And so, monitoring the energy and sort of sorting out what's wise for you at any particular point is part of it. The third is called citta, commitment to the task. And it's where you are not allowing the mind to wander, where you try again and again. I started to do the math and then I decided it wasn't a good idea. How many times do you think you've come back in this retreat? I mean, you know, really. Eight sittings a day, 45 minutes a set. Uh, you know, if you come back once a minute, that's 45 times for each sit. But, you know, you, you could play with it if you wanted, but I, don't, I wouldn't recommend it. It's a lot. Hundreds, thousands, maybe. At least thousands, many thousands. But you know, 
sometimes I say that's one of the most important instructions that we give. Come back. Over and over and over again. Come back in a set. Come back if you leave the practice. Come back, come back, come back. Don't ask questions. Don't kick yourself around the block. Just come back and begin again. Staying on the course, getting absorbed in your practice, just as like the old alchemists who used to try to make gold out of lead, which in a way is kind of what you're doing here, and it would just, you know, be in their studies and working, 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 trying to make this thing happen. So you, may, you, know, you might sleep less or be late for meals, and there's that place where there's nothing but the practice, nothing but the practice. And then the last of these wings is the wing, it's called Vimamsa, and it's the wise investigation of your heart and mind. And I think I mentioned in here, you know, the many times that I would go talk to my good friend Ajahn Amro about my practice, and I would say what I was doing and wasn't sure how he was going to respond, and then he would say, well, does it work? And I would say, well, yeah, it works great. He would say, great, keep doing it. So, you know, that's really the question. And this is where you begin to look to see what's working in your practice. And to begin to see that we can change a little bit. You know, Sylvia told that great story last night about her friend who, who was challenging her, who asked her, you know, don't you, think you could, don't you think you could get over it with this um, difficulty she was having in a relationship? And, and then I was thinking about a friend I had who came to a retreat many years ago now, and she also had a Vipassana romance. And it was going on, and um, she was single at the time, so you know, it was sort of interesting to have a Vipassana romance. And, but she was also a really good practitioner. And um, so at some point she thought, you know, this isn't being very skillful. And she realized she didn't know this person at all. She had no idea who this person was just that they were wonderful and she would love to spend the rest of her life with them and all of that. So she thought, you know, I'm going to start, I'm just going to tell myself a different story because I don't know. So what if this person is cranky, you know, eats different food from me, has different sleep patterns, doesn't like dogs, you know, whatever. And you create this other person because it could be that way. And after a while, the Vipassana romance just began to dissipate. It wasn't so compelling. She realized she really didn't know. She didn't know. There wasn't anyone to be in love with because she didn't know who was in there. You know. So you can do that. I, I've talked to people here who are trying things out that are a little bit outside their comfort zone. You know, doing something. Because, you know, here at the retreat, we get pretty settled, right? You always sit in the same place in here. You probably sit in the same place in the dining room. You walk in the same place out there. And and sometimes it can be helpful to just go, huh, I wonder what happens if I, you know, we begin to see that we don't have to inhabit those habitual stories and patterns that make up so much of our lives. That's a hugely important insight. To begin to understand that you can experiment 
and that you do not have to live in the stories, the many, many stories that we have that define ourselves. Joseph used to say, notice how the mind builds houses of stories and then we move in and look out through those windows. You know? So this really invites you to step outside the house. So in Hawaii, our piece of land has returned to its true nature. It is all native and endemic species. Constant vigilance, I'm always weeding. But it is quite luminous, actually, I think, and really wonderful. And our minds can be the same way, you know. Over and over, little invasive things, or big ones, whole armies, come in, some story, some craving, some loss of energy, some conceit. The armies of Mara, the armies of invasion, they're always ready to move in. They're always ready to challenge your awakening, always. The Buddha didn't escape Mara and neither will you, you know. So over and over again, we get to cultivate the garden. Please don't judge yourself when that happens, you know. It never occurred to me to judge my land because the ginger had moved in. You don't have to judge your mind when the army moves in. Just do the gardening, that's all. You are equipped with more and more wings. We've been offering you so many wings in these last weeks and we'll be offering you more. And you have these wings of the idipadas of passion and perseverance and coming back and the ability to experiment and to see what works. You have what it takes to create the garden of the luminous mind that is not in contention with anything or anyone. So here's one more poem, I think. Actually, two poems. One is from Izumi Shikibu, and she writes, As I dig for wild orchids in the autumn fields, it is the deeply bedded root that I desire, not the flower. And the other is from James Charlton called Best Spiritual Practice. He says, Best spiritual practice is to drop the word best, the word spiritual, the word practice is to re-enter your own garden, find each flower turned to the light. So let's breathe together for just a moment, just, just as you are. So thank you so very much for listening this afternoon.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.